You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at Napa Broadcasting. I'm Jeff Sheckman. You know the story of Willie Sutton being asked why he robbed banks and answering that that's where the money is. For any thief or con man, they go where they think they can find the easy dollars or the easy mark. For most of them, one of the last places of opportunity for crime that they might look to is the world of fine wine. Often seen as its own cloistered, rarefied world, you think it might be hard for an outsider to penetrate and gain the trust and confidence to pull off a world-class con. Stealing wine, losing bottles in a fire, insurance fraud, we've all heard of that. But for Rudy Kerniawan, the con was far riskier. That's the story that author-journalist Peter Hellman tells in his new book, In Vino Duplicitas. Peter Hellman is a journalist and author. He's been a contributor to Wine Spectator for more than a decade. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and New York Magazine. He's the author of eight previous books, and it is my pleasure to welcome Peter Hellman here to talk about In Vino Duplicitas, the rise and fall of a wine forger extraordinaire. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for pronouncing the title of the book, Correctly, not everybody does. <laughs> okay, well, I and, appreciate uh, Well, with respect to this title and this story, tell us a little bit about how you first came to the story. You know, journalists fall into things often without any uh, pre-planning uh, and without any digging of their own. In my case, in this story, uh, I'll take you back to the date, April 25th, 2008, uh, a Friday here in New York. I got a call late in the afternoon from a very reputable wine dealer who said you should go down to the Acre Merrill and Condit auction uh, at Crew, which was then kind of the apex of, of high-end wine restaurants in New York. On the A restaurant that's no longer there. It's no longer there and uh, its sister restaurant, Veritas, uh, is also gone. So the high spenders restaurants where you could buy a bottle for five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars uh, they didn't last because once the financial crisis came, the 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 high rollers uh, kind of uh, evaporated along with their their surplus money. So anyway, uh, there was an auction that evening at Crew, um, uh, and I was told that 22 lots of wine from a very sought-after domain, uh, Ponceau, uh, a Burgundian domain would be withdrawn at the demand of the proprietor, the fourth-generation proprietor, uh, Laurent Ponceau. And so I went down to the auction, not knowing much more than that. Indeed, halfway through the auction, uh, the auctioneer, John Capon, paused this very fast-paced action. Wine auctions have to be fast. And said, well, something a little unusual here. Uh, At the request of the domain... And with the consent of the consigner, I'm withdrawing the next 22 lots of Domain Ponceau wines, at which point somebody in the audience, who actually had come in from California, let out, a, um, let out the F word, very unhappy that, uh, that, that he couldn't pay $60,000 a case for some of these wines. Um, the consigner, in this case, unnamed, but everybody knew, was uh, Rudy Kurniawan, who then was not yet 30 years old, uh, was probably the largest dealer in in fine wine in the world, and uh, I didn't really know who he was. So at the end of the auction, I asked the wine director, Robert Bohr, is is Rudy Kurniawan here? And he said, Yeah, he's that little guy over in the in the corner. 
And so I went over to Rudy. I had not met him, and he had not met me, but I wanted him to think I was just a collector rather than a reporter. So I said, hey, Rudy. And he kind of looked at me like, who is this guy? Do I know him? And I said, Rudy, what happened with those 22 lots of Domaine Ponceau? And I saw him thinking hard for an answer, and finally he said, well, uh, it's Burgundy, but, you know, shit happens. And, um, and, and that's all he said. I wrote those words down in my catalog, and it's all he ever said about what happened with the Ponceau wines, which were, uh, this was a rare case where they absolutely could not exist as authentic wines. And the story is a little complicated, but basically there was no uh, Ponceau Clos-Saint-Denis in this case, one of the 32 uh, Grand Cru's of Burgundy. Uh, there was no Ponceau Clos-Saint-Denis until 1982, and the vintages on offer at that auction were 1945 through 1971. So kind of open and shut. Most of the time, fake wine, there's always doubts, is it real, is it not, you know, uh, here was a case open and shut. One of the questions that immediately comes to mind, though, is that the people at that auction, the potential bidders for this at that auction, people that were willing to pay fifty and sixty thousand dollars for a bottle of wine or for a case of wine, are people that arguably should have known that. Yes, they should have known that. But all, all of us in the wine world know that wine is kind of a moving target. It can trick up anybody. Uh, it has tricked up all the experts sooner or later there was a jeff there was a a great um, british taster harry waugh and he was once asked uh harry when was the last time you mistook a bordeaux for a burgundy and quick as a wink he answered not since lunchtime and that's kind of the um, the, the, the appropriate uh, uh, guardedness one should take with wine i'll just say this quickly if you see a fine sports car, a fine uh, a fine sweater, a fine garment, you can pretty quickly know that it's fine. Um, wine is 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 put in bottles, and they all are glass, and they all cost the same. Whether it's a, a ten thousand dollar Petrus or a ten dollar California Zinfandel, so you really can't know anything by looking at the bottle or feeling the bottle. Uh, it's a tricky business. It's it's made for uh, counterfeiters. And in fact, that's what made this whole con so doable. Tell us a little bit about who Rudy Kurniawan was. Uh, who Rudy Kurniawan was is remains, uh, as with most true con artists, I would say, mysterious. Uh, he was born in Jakarta, Indonesia. He's ethnically Chinese. Uh, he arrived in California sometime in the mid-90s. Uh, uh, he claimed to have wealthy, wealthy family members back in Indonesia, uh, possibly who owned the franchise for Heineken beer in Indonesia and other places in Asia. Uh, but whatever stories he told, have, those stories have never panned out. What is certain is he arrived in California, he went to Cal State Northridge. Uh, he claimed on a golf scholarship, but that turned out to be false. He claimed to have gone to a school for wealthy Indonesians in Singapore. That turned out to be false. Uh, he claimed he was getting a million dollar a month uh, allowance. 
from his family at home, uh, the only thing he had to do in return was take care of his mother. But it's unclear how much money he was getting. Some some weeks he was spending a million dollars on wine alone. So he did have money. Where did that money come from? I'm afraid to say it appears that uh, that this was, um, what shall I say, laundered money. Um, he he just was a mystery. What what Rudy did have uh, incontestably was a superb palate, and this only came clear he claims at a birthday dinner for his father on Fisherman's Wharf around the year 2000. Uh, he ordered a bottle from the wine list at whatever the restaurant was. Interestingly, he can't remember the name of the restaurant, but he remembers everything else about wine and food. Uh, and he bought a, an Opus 1, 1995 vintage, a good vintage. And this just was his epiphany. He adored it. Until then, he didn't know anything about wine. He immediately began buying all the Opus 1 that he could find, hundreds of bottles, he began tasting wine at home in Arcadia, California, uh, bottle after bottle, day and night, and he began to fine-tune his palate, and it was a very good palate. Everybody who met Rudy and, and drank wine with Rudy agrees that he had an extraordinary taste memory and extraordinary ability to, to distinguish between wines that seemed similar. He was just a great taster, and that helped him enormously. And how did he use that and the money that he had from whatever source it came from to kind of weasel his way into acceptability in the wine business? Well, at first, uh, after this uh, dinner, his father's birthday dinner, he was really doing nothing. He worked part-time in a golf pro shop. Maybe he did some accounting, but he was doing nothing, uh, really. And then he began to, to go to wine tastings, and he would bring very expensive bottles of French Bordeaux, Burgundy, uh, California, Colt Cabernets, Australian great wines, and he would open them generously. Uh, for a con man, generosity is a key to opening doors. And Rudy would open not just regular bottles, but double-sized bottles, triple-sized bottles, quadruple-sized bottles of very, very expensive wine and pour it generously. And people uh, perked up at that, and they invited him to their homes, to other tastings. And before you know it, uh, well, here's an example. 2003, uh, Rudy was selling extraordinarily expensive wine to the chairman of the Petco food, uh, pet store chain. And uh, who was Rudy at that point? He was just a kid in his mid-20s, and yet uh, he had made contacts with people like that chairman, Others uh, here in New York, uh, Michael Facitelli, who had been the head of real estate for Goldman Sachs, people who were extremely sophisticated in their own business world, just fell for this guy. Rudy was charming. He seemed to be kind of uh, a little, oh, what shall I say, a little undisciplined, uh, a little goofy. But when it came to wine, he was very sharp, and he never stopped pouring expensive wine. Uh, and and so he infiltrated the ranks of millionaires and billionaires uh, and sold them wine, ultimately. Including Bill Koch, who uh, did his own investigation into Rudy. Uh, it was a big mistake 
probably uh, the biggest mistake that, that Rudy made in terms of customers was selling wine to Bill Koch, one of the four Koch brothers. And I would say, Jeff, most all the other major, major uh, buyers of Rudy's wine were uh, unwilling really to come forward and say they had been cheated because it was uh, humiliating. Bill Koch took another tact. He just said, uh, I believe in the I believe in the traditions of the Old West. If you cheat me, I'm coming after you. And he came after Rudy Kurniawan in a big way. He sent uh, investigators, former FBI agents, former national security agents, uh, uh, CIA agents to to Jakarta, to Singapore, to uh, to China, and he just picked up all the information that he could get about Rudy and in the process discovered that Rudy wasn't telling the truth about anything. Uh, Bill Koch did step forward uh, when Rudy was finally tried in a court here in New York City, the first and only person ever tried for wine counterfeiting in the United States in a federal court. The only victim of Rudy Kurniawan to testify was Bill Koch. To what extent do we know how much of the wine that he sold to all of these billionaires along the way was real versus counterfeit? You've put your finger on the most difficult question to answer. Unquestionably, Rudy uh, sold a great deal of authentic wine. I think, I think the, what happened and what his, his defense team claimed happened is that in the early 2000s, you could still buy very rare French wine, Burgundy and Bordeaux, from mythical vintages. He paid a lot for it, but you could still get it. Uh, but but you, that stuff doesn't reproduce itself. And uh, by around 2003, Rudy couldn't get any more of the real stuff. And I believe he then said to himself, you know, I can't get this stuff anymore, but I know how it's supposed to taste and I think I can replicate it. And that's when he began to do that. So I would say, uh, yes, Rudy sold a great deal of real wine, uh, but, but he began to make wine in his, in his kitchen, and he seemed to do it day and night at times. Nobody can be quite sure. Nobody knows how much help he had. Uh, and, and so it, the answer to your question is just impossible to 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 pin down the government did charge and the the defense agreed uh to a total of 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 false wines of 30 million dollars that rudy sold to his victims that's a lot of wine how much of his ability to create this counterfeit wine was as a direct result of his palate and his ability to come close to what uh, the real wine might have been like I think that was the whole ball game for him. Uh, if you, if you, if Rudy decided to uh, counterfeit a 1959 close for example, Rudy knew the character of the 1959 vintage in in Burgundy. He knew that it was a hot summer, that the wines that were produced were more powerful in their aromas, darker in their colors than typical vintages, and so he might actually find some commercial grade 1959 burgundy 
not close and not a grand crew, but some. And he would buy it, have it sent to his house in Arcadia. He would open the bottle and pour out half of it and pour in half a bottle of a good quality California Pinot Noir, same grape. And he would mix and match and mingle until he got what he felt was uh, a very good approximation of the real wine. And when you tasted that wine, you would say, wow, this, this, this bottle, this wine has the has funk of old Burgundy, of uh, 70-year-old Burgundy, but it also has this wonderful, youthful fruitiness. It's incredible after 70 years. This wine is, is as if it were youthful. So he would very carefully make that, um, that, that, that concoction, and he knew how it should taste. And he knew how to fool those who thought they knew how it should right. taste. And, of course, many of the people he sold this wine to were not necessarily drinking it or drinking all of it, but putting a lot of it away. Uh, that's correct, Jeff. Uh, probably on balance, the two reasons people with excess money to park buy collectible wine is, uh, one, of course, you hope that they will want to drink it. Often it's hard to find the occasion to drink a bottle of wine that costs thousands of dollars. But there are other people who simply said, I'm going to put this away like gold bouillon, like bullion, like a bar of gold, and I'll just let it sit in a temperature-controlled, humidity-controlled cellar. And when the time comes, when the market is strong, I will resell it and make a profit. And those are people who were less interested in, in wine, in love of wine, than in profit from wine. Given how much money he spent, given how much money he apparently had, even though the source of that money is, is, as you say, unclear, what do we understand, if anything, about his motive for doing this? Ah, motive. I think at first it was a challenge for Rudy to see if he could fool very sophisticated drinkers with with his concoctions. And also, of course, it became a moneymaker for him. If you could uh, take an old hand-blown bottle and fill it with an appropriate uh, blend of wines and tell people it's a 1945 Romani Conti, possibly the rarest and most sought-after Burgundy of the last century, well, you could sell it, and he did sell it for $15,000 a bottle. And uh, again... If the purchasers of those wines simply had picked up the phone and called the domain in Burgundy, or in the case of Bordeaux, called up those proprietors and said, do you think this wine could really be authentic? They would have learned pretty quick that the chances were very slight. But nobody did that. You know, They just bought the wine, put it in the cellar, trusted the auctioneer, trusted Rudy, uh, in retrospect, it seems seems crazy that people were so uncareful with what they purchased. How did he finally get caught? Well, that Ponceau auction that I just mentioned right. to you, what I call the faux Ponceau auction at Acker on April 25th, 2008, those 22 lots of wine were withdrawn. The next day, there was a, a lunch, and at, at the table at Jean-Georges, a restaurant here on Columbus Circle, mm-hmm. were Rudy Cornillon, the auctioneer John Capon, 
the fourth generation proprietor of Domaine Ponceau, Laurent Ponceau, and Douglas Barzelay, a renowned Burgundy expert. And Ponceau recalls that at that lunch, about halfway through, he turned to Rudy and said, you know, Rudy, those were fake bottles, and if somebody ever drunk them, they would be disappointed because they would see my name on the label, but it wouldn't be my wine. You have to tell me where you got them from. And Rudy responded, well, you know, I don't keep good records, and I buy so much wine, and I'm not really sure where I got it from, but I'll try to find out. Well, of course, he never did find out because he couldn't say the truth, which is that the wine came from his own uh, kitchen workshop. And from that moment on, from that day on, Rudy was on on the downhill. Uh, no, well, a few auction houses did take his wine after that, but Acker stopped taking it. And he had to lay low, and major collectors became suspicious of him, and uh, it was it was just downhill from there. And how did the feds get involved? The feds never would have gotten involved were it not for a very young assistant U.S. attorney here in New York named Jason Hernandez. Jason is a second-generation Cuban-American and a true lover of wine and even a collector of wine. And there had been a case against a predecessor of Rudy Kurniawan uh, named Hardy Rodenstock. And a lot of people may know the book The Billionaire's Vinegar by Ben Wallace, which details how Hardy Rodenstock tried to pawn off so-called Thomas Jefferson bottles on, on, on wealthy buyers. And Bill Koch pushed the Justice Department to, to bring a case against Hardy Rodenstock. And we're going back now to the, to the 90s. Uh, but nothing ever came of that. But there was a file there in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office about that. And when the Rudy Kurniawan uh, uh, story came along, and I did write a story about that Acker auction uh, when the Ponceau lots were withdrawn, um, Jason Hernandez had just started as a U.S. Assistant U.S. Attorney, and he pulled that file, which began with Hardy Rodenstock, but now also included material on Rudy Kurniawan. And I have to tell you, Jeff, at that time, there was no interest on the part of the feds in prosecuting wine counterfeiters. Their position was, and it was understandable, gee, we have terrorism to worry about, we have big-time drug deals to worry about, we have Wall Street shenanigans to worry about, we're just not going to bother with billionaires who are, who are too stupid to, to do their own homework on the wines they buy. But Jason Hernandez felt differently. He felt that this case should be activated, and he got his superiors to do just that, to allow him to go forward. Hernandez met a very uh, crusty veteran of the FBI uh, who um, was in charge of the, of the uh, art fraud squad here in New York. Uh, and that gentleman, uh, Jim Wynn, uh, worked with Jason and together, they, be, they, got, they subpoenaed Rudy's uh, records, financial records. They began to look at carefully at what he was buying, especially on his, on his American Express card. Why was he buying $14,000 worth of French wax? French wax that was used by kings to, 
to uh, to imprint their seal on, and also used by winemakers to to uh, coat the capsule of of larger format bottles of their wine. Who needed who would need so much wax if not to use it in some kind of a counterfeiting activity? And uh, they found that he was buying old commercial grade Burgundy from France, and yet those bottles never showed up in his auctions. What was happening to those bottles? Well, we now know that they were used uh, to make his counterfeits. These were hand-blown bottles. Uh, They were dusty. They were heavy. They were authentic. And once they were infused with with, uh, youthful California juice, uh, it became... It became very difficult to to not to realize that they were not necessarily the real thing. Did the Fed see this as almost akin to art forgery crime? Uh, I think they were less interested in it than in art forgery, and of course, you know, a ten million dollar painting, a twenty million dollar painting, is of more interest to the FBI than a ten thousand dollar bottle of wine. Uh, so, no, they weren't so interesting. But between Jason Hernandez and Jim Wynn, they did bring it to the forefront. And the result was that uh, an indictment was brought against Rudy Kurniawan. And uh, he was tried and sentenced. I will tell you that one of the most amazing things that, will, that happened but will never happen again, I'm dead certain, in a federal courtroom, was that one day in December... 2013, three great French Burgundian vintners testified at the trial of Rudy Cornillon. There was Laurent Ponceau, of course, who had blown the whistle. There was uh, Christophe Rumier, who is the fourth-generation proprietor of another great uh, domain, Domaine Rumier, and even the greatest of all the Burgundian uh, uh, domain heads now, Aubert de Villene, who is the head of uh, Domaine de la Romanicanti, Burgundy's greatest wine. And all three of these gentlemen trooped up one after the other and testified. Uh, Jason Hernandez showed them the fake labels, the fake bottles. Their eyes really popped out. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Uh, wines that they themselves had no access to and hadn't had access to for decades, uh, Rudy was able to uh, magically produce. Why did He was offered a plea deal. Why didn't he take it? I interestingly, I had just last night a discussion about this with a with a federal judge. Um, in most federal cases, once the indictment is there and the case is about to go to trial, the defendant pleads guilty in ninety percent plus of the of the instances because those defendants know that the chances are very, very good that they're going to be convicted. So if they, if they spare the government the expense of a trial and perhaps, uh, what shall I say, squeal uh, on others who might be implicated in the crime, they will get a lighter sentence. And that could have happened uh, in the case of Rudy Kurniawan, but he insisted on going to trial, even though the evidence found on, in the house where he lived with his mother on the day of his arrest, March 8th, 2012, uh, was so overwhelming, Rudy had to know there was no chance he was ever going to be uh, able to escape conviction. Nobody knows why he decided to 
go forward with the trial, which was extremely expensive. Uh, his brothers in Asia footed the bill for this. I don't even want to think about how much the trial cost. Uh, his principal trial attorneys he, were from California. So just the cost of going back and forth, surely in first class uh, seats uh, and staying at first class hotels in New York was extraordinary. But that's what Rudy did. Uh, my personal feeling is is that he didn't he just wanted never to talk and to preserve the secrecy of where all the money had come from um, but in the end nobody knows for sure sure because Rudy has never spoken I've written him probably seven times in prison and he's never responded I'd hope to interview him I've been to the prison which is in uh, Taft California uh, hope to see him there, but he refused to see me, and uh, his mystery remains a mystery. And finally, do you have a theory as to where the money came from? Do I have a theory? Well, uh, I will tell you what Bill Koch's investigators learned about the source of Rudy's money. Uh, Bill Koch hired, among numerous others, the, the retired uh, station chief, CIA station chief for Jakarta, who worked on this case quite a while. And uh, according to Bill Koch, two of Rudy's uncles embezzled a billion dollars, one billion dollars from the Indonesian government. And uh, one of those uncles uh, fled to Australia and died there while awaiting uh, being sent back to Indonesia extradition. The other uncle was sentenced to 20 years in prison in Indonesia. Uh, a few days after he was put in the prison, a high security prison, all the doors magically opened and he walked out into a waiting car and has not been seen since. So according to Bill Koch, these two uh, uncles of Rudy, who were the brothers of Rudy's mother, uh, hid away this money uh, there's evidence of uh, one particular shell corporation in, um, in Tortola in the British Virgin Islands, uh, and his mother is a, a, a beneficiary, shareholder of that shell corporation. So it seems as if, according to Bill, money uh, was funneled into these secret accounts offshore, and uh, and it appears that Rudy uh, may have used that money to buy wine, and uh, and that's what seems to be the case, but that's not proven. Peter Hellman, his book is In Vino Duplicitas, The Rise and Fall of a Wine Forger Extraordinaire. Peter, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.